So it's great to be here today, and uh, thanks all of you for coming along. Um, <coughs> there were several ways I could have approached this presentation <clears throat> in terms of sort of angles into some of the stuff that I've been working on that um, you might find interesting. So I've had to opt for a couple of particular approaches. So there are a lot of hidden slides in this deck, so if we do want to uh, go and talk about some other areas, I've maybe got some stuff um, that we can use. Um, if you want to follow uh, our project, it's OER underscore hub on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter as philosopher1978. So OER hub stands for Open Education Research Hub. Um, we're based at the Institute of Educational Technology at the Open University of the UK. Obviously, the Open University has a long history of involvement with um, open education, widening participation, and um, open educational resources. Uh, so at the moment we have several different projects we're working on. So there's the OER World Map, um, there's the GoGN Global OER Graduate Network. That's a network for of support for doctoral students working on open education. Um, there's Opening Educational Practices in Scotland. There's the Explore OER Explorer project as well. Um, so that's some things we're doing at the moment. But for the first part of this talk, I wanted to take you through um, the sort of prior project to OER Hub. Uh, called OER Research Hub, um, where OER stands for Open Educational Resources instead. Uh, and um, this bit is going to focus on some of the findings that we've had coming out of our work um, in this area um, and some reflections on the kind of complexities of doing research around the impact of open educational resources. So, um, OER Research Hub started in 2012 and um, ran for three years. We collaborated with a lot of different institutions, primarily in the USA, um, where a lot of this stuff was kind of uh, more developed um, at the time. So you might see some um, some names there that you're familiar with, maybe not. Um, unfortunately, for the people listening to the audio recording, I'm not going to be able to read out everything on my slides. Um, so, um, but they are going to be available through my slideshow uh, anyway. So a big network of people that we were working with. Um, and to note that there's a, there's a kind of a, an open element to that, right, around, around collaboration. The way that the um, project worked was we had uh, a series of hypotheses that we were supposed to be testing. Uh, and all of these were to do with um, the supposed impact of using open educational resources. Is everyone okay with the phrase open educational resources? Do I need to explain it? Okay. So, um, so these uh, hypotheses came from work in the previous project, which is the Open Learning Network project, uh, but also some stuff around collective intelligence as a, as a part of that project where they'd have sort of um, focus groups and sessions working with practitioners to try and, try and establish what were the main things that people were concerned about. So you have here things like when they use OER, do students perform better? Um, do people use open resources differently because of the license? Does the license matter? Um, does it uh, widen participation? Does it help people who are at risk of dropping out to continue if they have access to a free textbook, for instance, and so on. So the idea behind that project was to try and come at, come at answers to these uh, and build, build an evidence base around the global picture for uh, OER impact. Uh, so we tried to um, embrace openness in the research process as well. Uh, we allowed people to have some, we allowed collaborators to have some influence over the way we did research with those with the group around them, with their network. So if they had particular questions they were interested in, we try and include that. That might mean dropping one of our other questions. 
Um, so it's not a consistent sort of survey across everything. There's some flexibility, um, which obviously has implications for the validity. Um, we also had sort of agile methods where uh, we would kind of, rather than set a sort of strict research program at the start, we would have kind of adapt as we went along to work out, okay, what's the best use of our time this week? Um, this is a technique derived from software development, agile software development, where you kind of reorientate on a kind of regular basis and work out, are we going in the right direction? So, um, it's mixed methods research, and we were using um, using these, these research hypotheses as a way of sort of loosely gathering together disparate bits of evidence, really. Uh, so the data set as a whole, uh, we have more than 20 surveys that we um, had completed. Uh, interviews with educators, experts, learners, ransom focus groups, and we collected impact statements. Uh, so overall, the data set for OER Research Hub uh, had about uh, just short of 7,500 responses from uh, 180 odd countries. You can see the breakdown there of <coughs> who those people were. <coughs> Mostly informal learners in the data set. Um, mostly speaking English as a first language, but only two thirds. So about a third of them are non-native English speakers. Um, and you can see that 34% hold a postgraduate degree, which I think is interesting in itself, in terms of who's responding to these surveys. And it's worth also saying that you know, it's not the most scientific approach. right? It's not controlled sampling. It's not um, statistically valid or anything like that. But it was trying to build a data set from nothing, when, when nothing exists at the moment. Um, you can see here, this is where people participated from. Uh, now, obviously, you'd expect there to be that concentration in the USA, because most of our collaborations were in the USA. But we also had um, surveys that were open on MOOC platforms for anyone to come along and provide an answer. And you can see here, there's a few, uh, few white-colored countries here on the map in Africa. But everywhere else that's got some colour, some grey, we had some people from there in our data set. So again, it's not necessarily scientifically valid uh, in terms of sampling and so on, but um, it's a reasonably kind of broad picture. I think we had, um, apart from those African countries, I think there were six countries not represented at all. Um, so we had about between five and 40 for most countries, but um, significantly more in the USA and Britain. So. There are lots of findings from this stuff, as you can imagine, um, with uh, 11 hypotheses, all these different countries, and so on. So I'm just going to run you through a couple of slices, if you like, to show you the kind of stuff that's coming out of it. <coughs> so of the educators who responded, 37% um, agreed or strongly agreed that OER use increases student satisfaction. So they were prepared to make a direct link between the use of OER in their classroom and um, more satisfied students at the end of it. 27% uh, said OER use improved the grades of their students. Now it's quite difficult to actually prove that relationship, so it's just attitudinal data really. Um, getting hold of institutional metrics that would show you what people's grades actually were is quite tough. Um, and certainly for us as working as third parties, if you like, not part of the institution that we were trying to work with, it proved to be very hard to get um, something that would corroborate this attitudinal data. Um, but in terms of these um, these kind of behaviours that we're looking for evidence around, does it improve engagement? Does it promote new ways of learning? Does it increase student interest in the subject? We're getting fairly consistent re responses there, about 35%. Um, 
looking specifically at community college educators, so um, working with community colleges was one of my um, collaborations during the project. Uh, so this is just looking at people who teach in a community college. Community colleges are kind of like uh, non-compulsory institutions in America, roughly somewhere between uh, secondary and tertiary, but they have the ability to give what they call associate degrees, but not bachelor's degrees normally. So most of the people who responded to this part were um, experienced teachers with postgrad qualifications. Uh, most of them teach, uh, teach full-time and have some online component. About half of them are already using OER. So um, what this graph shows is um, different indicators that we asked people about uh, on a Likert scale to say, do you strongly agree, do you strongly disagree with this statement? Um, and they're ranked in order of strong, strong agreement. So you can see here that almost 70% of people agree with the idea that because they used OER, they were making use of more culturally diverse resources. Um, even more said they collaborate more with colleagues. So this could be around producing an open textbook together, for instance, um, or even just discussing which, which OER might we choose in our classroom. Um, and we have similar things here around using a broader range of teaching and learning methods, not just the resources, but experimenting with resources and which resources to use inclines people to think about more methods and different ways of actually doing the teaching. Um, improved subject knowledge, comparing teaching with others. Some people even said their ICT skills were improving because of their OER use, and so on. Um, but we see broadly a very positive skew in terms, you know, people were more likely to agree with these than disagree with them. <coughs> <clears throat> thinking about the students, sorry, yeah? Sorry, Robert, I probably just wasn't listening. The respondents, were they all you already using OERs, or is this just a, a section of college educators in general? So that it's, it's, or it's not necessarily people are already using OER, uh -huh. it's whoever answered the survey. Okay, good. So the survey was circulated around colleges, and you know, we we're just sort of hopeful that we could get oh, some okay. sort of spread of people. Right. Um, so these are more likely to be the advocates that are answering the yeah. survey, for sure. Um, but even you know, but even though they're advocating for it, doesn't mean they're necessarily devotees. Right. So, um, so yeah, that's definitely you know a point worth making. Um, <coughs> this is looking at um, community college students. So more than half of them uh, agreed with the idea that their, their student satisfaction was increasing because of OER use. So it mirrors what we found with educators. Um, Increased interest in the subject was a big one, 60%. Uh, and again, these same um, patterns are seen for increased experimentation and confidence. Um, I'll talk a bit more about a particular cohort, the Sailor Academy people, shortly. Um, but they're all non-formal learners. So they're all people who are you know, unsupported, just working through materials um, on their own. Um, and they believe that they became more confident and so on as well. So if you don't know the American context that well, um, textbooks are a big thing in American college education. Uh, textbook costs are often very high, higher than in the UK. So much so that tuition is often less than the cost of the textbook. Uh, and publishers in America have a lot of techniques to try and make sure people buy textbooks all the time. So um, part of the, as part of the reason why in the US, a lot of the people who are interested in the OER movement are interested in open textbooks because it's a very sort of tangible game to switch that proprietary textbook for a, an open one which is then free to their students. And so there's all these kind of follow-on effects from that around 
whether or not, because you have a textbook at the start of the course, rather than having to wait for a, a grant or something to come in, maybe you're more likely to start hit the ground running and be engaged in the course and, and you know, actually get further um, and be less likely to drop out and that kind of thing. So we did find some, um, some support for that in the uh, anecdotal uh, data as well. But often these things are kind of completed a bit with it being digital as well. <clears throat> I'm going to dwell too much on this because I've got quite a bit to get through. Um, okay, I think we've seen that one. So when we ask people what kind of OER are you consulting or using, um, the big one that comes out is videos. So videos is, was by far and away, and this wasn't just in this particular subset, this was across all of our um, data. Um, videos and images are the things people look for the most and use the most. Um, and bearing in mind, this is community college educators who are using, uh, who are talking about the value of open textbooks. Only 37% of them said they're using open textbooks. And that's, you know, what you kind of expect, the, cl the cliche would say that they would be using open textbooks. But, um, uh, and also, if you look down to the bottom, some of the stuff around, you know, whole courses, if someone's developed a whole course and put it out there for free online, people aren't really using that. Yeah? You know, the videos, are they not lectures? Could be, it's, it's the format, not the content. Because lectures, oh, okay. So, yeah, you could have a video of a lecture, um, but if you, look, if you look at this next slide here, you'll see, so this is which repositories people used. Um, this is YouTube. Then TED Talks. So they're the most popular. Well, people, this is how people are responding when you say, what kind of OER are you, are you using? Um, now, this is admittedly an American sample. But these specialist UK OER repositories, like Joram and so on, uh, even in the UK sample, people just like, nope, what's that? Never heard of it. But people know about YouTube. Right, and YouTube's full of all kinds of stuff that's actually pretty educational. Um, yeah. Now, a YouTube standard license would not be considered OER, would it? Because it's so that's when opt to have a Creative Commons license. Well, having a Creative Commons license and being open are not the same thing necessarily. We didn't try to impose a strict definition of openness on people. Arguably, anything on YouTube that you can access freely is open. Okay, so you're not using the. OER as an openly licensed definition of OER. No. It's a more broad definition. Okay. Um, but it's more trying to understand people's practices. So you know, where do you find OER? They say YouTube. Yeah. So even if they only un they understand it to mean it tells you about the interpretation open. as well as the yeah, practice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so part of the picture here was that the specialist repositories are not used as much as the things where you'd go, you know, somewhere obvious to search for something. Um, we found evidence that supports the idea that using open textbooks saves students money. Some of the other claims people make around institutional benefits of OER were less clear. I'll say a little bit more about that. So when we asked, um, these are, again, this is the college of educators, has your institution saved money? 44% uh, said yes, 19% uh, said no, and 37% don't know. When you compare that to have the students save money, they believe it's about 62% yes, 25% don't know, and 13% no. Um, and you can see some of those comments there on the side. This figure of roughly $100 per student per year, or per class per year, is one that you find repeated quite a lot. 
So if you ever want to estimate roughly how much is saved by moving to an OER presentation of a course, it's roughly $100 per student per class, at least in the US. This is what the figure that's been found in a few different studies. Uh, also ask people there how important is open licensing. Um, you can see here 34% very important, 20% crucial. The thing is, when we ask people, do you openly license what you create? No, they don't. So people have the belief that it's the right thing to do is to use an open license. When it comes down to it, they don't do that much of the time. I think it's about 20% of people who create use an open license. But they, they tell you that... Sorry, Rob, what's this data from? Are we still in America in the yeah. colleges? And this is the start in colleges? Yeah. So there's a slight discrepancy there between um, what, you, what people said they believe is the right thing to do and what they actually did. Um, so of these community college educators we had uh, most of them have used some sort of OER only a quarter of them create uh, the pattern of reporting positive effects was quite consistent and seen in the student population as well one of the kind of interesting effects of all this is the idea of increased reflection on practice so if someone starts moving to an OER kind of approach are they thinking a bit more about what they're sharing how they're sharing it um, and so on Again, this is compared with teaching from a textbook in the States, typically. Um, but you, you know, there's certainly an element of polarization where some people are very much pro, some people are very much anti, and most people are kind of in the middle. Um, I'll move on to talking about uh, non-formal learning. This isn't my picture, but I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good picture. Um, the stuff I'm going to talk about here is in the paper that I provided the citation for below if you want to check it out. So this is comparing um, different repository users. So it's all non-formal learners. And the three repositories are Sailor, Sailor Academy, uh, iTunes U, that's the Open University's channel on iTunes U, and OpenLearn, which is the Open University's uh, OER repository. Now you can see um, from this straight away there's a skew towards the younger age group in iTunes U, which is the orange one, and a skew towards the older age groups in the dark blue one, which is OpenLearn. Um, I'm just giving you the synopsis rather than the kind of analysis of this stuff. Uh, we found that iTunes U channel users are much more likely to be younger, male, uh, often in full-time education and kind of using uh, something like the iTunes uh, podcasts to explore stuff that's not on their curriculum. Um, that they're interested in, but in quite a casual way maybe. Um, by contrast, people using the Sailor resources much more likely to already be in a job, have a degree, and be motivated primarily by professional development and kind of getting, getting on, um, I suppose, at, in a cost-effective way. Um, OpenLearn users more likely to be older, retired, and female, um, and more motivated by personal interest rather than um, professional development. So um, this graph shows you how aware people of one repository were of the other repositories that are out there. Um, and the answer is not that much. Um, again, YouTube comes out quite well. It's the, the one with the highest overall. Um, Again, these, these UK ones, this, this is not a US sample, this is some US, some UK, but you can see these specialist OER repositories, uh, Joram and Kariki and so on. Not many people, 
at least in that, in that cohort, knew anything about it. Um, so I think it's fair to conclude from this sort of section of stuff. Um, most most people who responded to this, even though they're taking a survey which says clearly it's about OER and so on, don't really understand what OER is in the way that we might understand it as a very sort of um, specific thing. Most of the time, people interpret OER as something as either I can get it or I can't, and it's open if I can get it, and it's not open if I can't get it. The licensing is quite an abstract idea. Um, so coming out of this stuff with the non-formal learners, um, quite a lot of support for the idea that OERs are mainly used by people who are already educated. So the idea that somehow MOOC and OER are massively expanding access to education is, is dubious, um, because most of the time the people who can access that are people who have um, enough computer skills to use a computer, an internet connection, access to all this stuff, and the ability to kind of work through it on their own. Um, that said, um, people who were using OER across all the repositories expressed a high degree of satisfaction, which they didn't have to. Um, so I think people do appreciate the, the opportunities that it gives them. One of the things that we're interested in is whether or not if you go and take a bunch of MOOC or you do some OER study, does it lead to formal study? Do you eventually go and um, become a formal student? Um, so the picture here is a bit mixed and it kind of partly depends on the repository. But roughly equal numbers. So we ask people, based on your experience of using OER, are you more or less likely to study formally? Um, so it was roughly 20% for both Sailor and iTunes U. Um, with OpenLearn, um, we had 13% less likely to study and 31% more likely. OpenLearn has specific pathways built into it so that when you start working through the open materials, it will start you basically into a degree program. So it will kind of feed you into that um, uh, formal study. So this may reflect a more strategic approach to structuring OER in such a way that it leads you to uh, study on a formal basis. Uh, one other finding from this, all this stuff is that you know, we asked people, do you adapt OER? And this was th we were thinking about sort of the 5R behaviors. Do people, are you remixing stuff that you find online? Are you making it into a different format for something that you need and so on? Um, we found nearly 80% of people said, yes, I adapt OER. Now, my interpretation of that is that maybe the question was a bit unclear because we allow people to say, interpret adaptation as in whatever way they, they went into. Um, so they might have taken it to mean, well, I just need something on um, economics. So I found this economics 101 textbook and I adapted it to my needs by reading it or something like that. Um, so we found that there was a very high number of people reporting adaptation, but it's something that we're not, there's not been enough work done to know exactly what do people mean by adapt and does it mean that you have to sort of transform it and remix it or does it mean just, I took it, something that was made for one purpose and I used it for another purpose without changing it. If you want to read more about the um, outcomes from that project, there's two reports you can read, uh, evidence report and the data report. Uh, they're available for free on an on a open license on our website. Uh, we've also recently published a handbook on open research, which is also uh, freely available. Um, this is based on um, some of our experiences around trying to explore openness in research processes and in, uh, in collaboration and the kind of things that you might want to think about if you're moving in that area. So, just some thoughts around the challenges of doing research around OER impacts. 
Um, awareness of OER remains pretty low, but OER use is high, especially if you include things like Facebook, uh, sorry, Facebook, YouTube. Um, but the evidence that we have around that is quite mixed. There's quite a lot of stuff in the US um, where they're focusing on what they call textbook efficacy studies. So this is almost employing a sort of biomedical um, approach where you say, okay, control all the variables, substitute the open textbook for the commercial one, um, and then see whatever changes we attribute to that textbook. Um, which I'm not sure I entirely buy into that, but that is what that is the currency in the US at the moment because people want to see before they move over to um, open textbooks, how do I know it's not going to be any worse for my students? So there's a lot of these textbook uh, efficacy studies that are trying to build up an evidence basis. It's at least not worse. It's the same um, at, at worst, and um, it's certainly a lot cheaper. Um, I'll say a little bit more about research priorities towards the end. Um, it's hard to triangulate this stuff, um, especially when you consider that part of the um, part of the thing around openness and an open resource is its essential mutability, right? It can be changed, it can be used in different ways, remixed and so on. Thinking about these efficacy studies, you might say, well, look, this we've done a study on this textbook and we found it to be efficacious to a reasonable level. Okay, then I'm going to take out chapter four, so I've got chapter four from this other textbook and I want to put that in there. What status does that efficacy study then have? It's, it's supposed to be based on essentially a sort of pharmaceutical testing model. Um, I'm not sure it really works myself. Um, just some thoughts around openness, um, I suppose philosophical thoughts. Uh, I did have more of this stuff in one draft of this presentation, but I thought, is this going to be just a bit too abstract and weird? Um, but some of the stuff I've been thinking about recently with this, uh, we had a quote from uh, Bon Stewart in the um, previous presentation. Uh, I actually wrote a, a book chapter uh, on the idea of constellations um, as a way of understanding openness two years ago. It's only just come into print, so um, I have some thoughts around that. And this, that's all to do with this idea of can you define openness, do you need to, and so on. Um, I also have a paper which is about um, openness and its relation to a sort of critical form of inquiry and critical forms of pedagogy. And I'll bend you about ideology, if you want me to, um, in the open education movement. Um, recently I've been exploring stuff around the whether or not a commitment to openness also in, includes these kind of broader social and political and ideological commitments with it. Uh, most, most people probably say, no, it's more practical, but I would say maybe not. Anyway, there's some uh, citations here if you want to read more of that sort of stuff. But what I wanted to do with the, uh, the rest of this session now is talk a bit about a piece of work that we've done fairly recently. Um, and this was about trying to work out how do we, how do we understand what research priorities are uh, going forward? Um, and can we, can we sort of draw on openness as an approach to kind of arrive at a collective understanding about that? Uh, it's also born out of, um, I don't know if you've ever, people, any humanities scholars in here, but um, when I was doing my um, uh, philosophy postgrad stuff, we used to have um, two hour long seminars where we'd have a guest speaker come in. And it wasn't uncommon for them to just read from their manuscript for over an hour. Um, and you know, you'd have all these kind of talent and all these brains in the room, and everyone's just sitting and listening to someone read. It used to drive me mad actually, because it's like I can read, right? I, mean, I can do that I could do that before and then come here and we can have a better discussion maybe. But um, not that I did the reading necessarily, but um, in principle I could have. So um, 
So part of the idea with this was thinking, how can we make better use of people's time at conferences? Um, can we, what they call, flip the situation so that all the prep's done beforehand and you make better use of that time? So this was born out of that, really. And it's basically a consultation exercise. Um, and it's designed to uh, give us information around what people think we should be doing research on. Um, and we do it through, um, first of all, a survey. And I'll show you some stuff around the survey in a second. Very, very simple. The idea was to make it as light touch as possible. Uh, so it's just a few filter questions and a couple of free text boxes. So um, we're into the 90s of survey responses. Again, not scientific, um, but we're basically targeting people who are sort of leaders in the area and have influence and to see what their interest is. Uh, so again, not statistically valid stuff, but maybe interesting. So the way this works is there's the online survey and then we go to an event or an occasion like this and essentially present some sort of talking points and things of interest that have arisen then um, run it like a focus group, get people to comment and kind of offer their suggestions, but then capture all that and make it part of the data set for the next time. So there's an ongoing thing where we could say, yeah, but when we took it here, people said this and so on. So um, the first one was the Hewlett OER meeting. So there's an annual meeting for grantees of the Hewlett Foundation, uh, which funds a lot of our, our work. It actually took place on this boat um, uh, on the Mississippi, which pretty good. And um, that's when we first started get soliciting opinions around this stuff. We did our first uh, live presentation at OE Global in Krakow earlier this year. Um, and part of what we were doing was um, uh, sort of live thematic analysis of what people were saying. So here's an attempt at that anyway. Also went to the uh, OER 16 conference. Did a webinar with our graduate students as part of the graduate network. Presented it at the Computers and Learning Research Group annual conference. That's uh, a group based at the OU. Uh, we had a European OER experts meeting in June. This is the Institute of Educational Technology where I work. Also went to the OERU expert meeting in October. Uh, this is Inverness. Um, sort of foolishly st stood outside the venue and took this photo. So you can't see the building where we're actually in. So it's a bit kind of back to front, but you get the idea. Uh, then most recently um, in Richmond, Virginia for open education. So it's been around the block, you could say, um, and we've had quite a lot of chances for people to have input into it. Um, I won't say too much about the, you know, the breakdown of the sample and stuff, because I don't think it's that interesting, really. Um, one thing to note, because well, the original idea was we'd be able to filter this stuff by things like role and country and so on. Um, that got scuppered by the fact that most people, like you probably have seen this as up to more than 100. Most people said they had multiple roles. One said they had as many as seven roles. So yes, I'm an educator and an advocate and a policymaker and a funder and all this sort of stuff. Um, I think something like um, over a third of people, so one third said they had one role. Um, more than three quarters said they were an educator and something else. So um, we asked them, what's your level of expertise with open education? Um, these are people who said they were experts, these people said they were proficient, they were the two highest categories. So people were saying that they knew what they were talking about, basically. So um, we asked, what are the most important areas for open education research? Now, this is just thematic analysis of the survey stuff, plus stuff that came up in live sessions. 
Now, the most popular thing people said we should be doing work on was open educational practices. <coughs> now, I would say that makes sense. I would say open educational practices are not very well defined still. <coughs> and when, most of the time when people were saying we should do work on this, they weren't saying, is it X or Y? They were just saying, what's that all about, basically? Um, another one that's been coming up more and more is pedagogy. So if you'd have done this maybe two, three years ago, textbook adoption would be the top one because it'd be skewed by people in the States. But pedagogy is becoming more important. Um, people are more interested in detailed, qualitative case studies of what actually happened in that institution when we moved towards open resources. What was the real effect? What was the human effect? Rather than just how much did students save and what was the learning outcome and so on. It's broader than just that, those things. Um, which are the data points that, that carry a lot of weight in the US. So things that were sort of less popular, um, stuff around reuse, there was uh, a few people saying they wanted us to do work or sort of discourse analysis of how people use the word open, what does it mean in different contexts. Um, I'm going to say some more about these in a second, so don't worry about capturing them. Uh, less popular stuff, accessibility, ethics, um, the global north-south divide. Basically had one, um, I'll say more in a second, hang on. Let's move on to the next bit. So um, to finish this off, I've just got a series of these themes with kind of sub-themes. Um, and maybe we'll just go through each one and we can have a slight brief discussion around each one if anyone wants to say anything or I'll just move on to the next one. So the first one we characterise as open practices and pedagogies, with open pedagogy written in bigger text because it kind of um, came up a lot more. Now one observation I made earlier this month at the Open Education Conference is that lots of people are talking about open pedagogy, but what they actually mean is an open educational practice. I would say. Yes, I agree. Because um, pedagogy to me involves something more theoretically robust or developed than just saying, well, you know, in my classroom we used OER, therefore I have an open pedagogy. Mm, not, not, not by my reckoning, but it's not that well defined. Um, but I think that more substantive idea of an open pedagogy needs to be developed and would be a good thing to develop. Um, some of the other things that, that came up here were sort of practical things. How do we uh, get institutional recognition for what we're doing? Um, how do we make connections with other people that are in a similar situation and so on? Uh, any other comments or thoughts on this one? Shall we move on? I'll move on. Sorry, can yeah. I just make one comment or perhaps it's a question? It seems to be that open pedagogy is the term that most people are using in the US to talk yeah. about what we refer to when we talk about OEP on this side of the Atlantic. Is that your experience? Or I would say so. Very much the same conversations, but then using a different object. Yeah. You know. um, I think the attention on pedagogy is right, but I don't give someone a free pass just because they're using OER but doing everything else the same. I wouldn't call that an open pedagogy, personally. But again, it's, it's up for grabs. Yeah. Uh, so those bullet points, are they things that are constitutive of open pedagogy? So this is just trying to, this, so these are, these are clusters really of thematic analysis. So you could have done this a different way. You could have sort of parceled it up differently, but um, these are just, just the way we try to make sense of it, basically. So if, if there's an open pedagogy that isn't there a closed one, maybe defining that we might get to. Interesting approach. I'm not sure what a closed pedagogy would be, unless you mean just a traditional 
Let's let's hope let's keep that one on ice for the time being. Um, just aware of time, that's all. Um, so um, on OER impact research, and this was something that a lot of people were like, were sort of, this is what we need more of, lots more of this. Um, so this is you know trying to measure the influence and, and the outcomes for institutions of moving towards an OER system. Um, but there was a, a, a sort of palpable need for more studies that are not just based on cost and efficacy and learning outcomes, but also looking at broader institutional changes. Now, what happens if you move more in this direction? Um, and also using more research methods to sort of understand those things as well. Uh, another kind of broad category was the idea of promoting adoption and adaptation. Um, and so you can see this in, the, in, in light of the previous point around case studies and these kind of detailed case studies. What are people actually doing with this stuff? Um, it's still very much unknown what's happening with a lot of OER stuff and Remix because there's no process by which that ever gets fed back to anyone. Um, but there was a lot of interest in the idea of how do I go to my institution and um, understand the kind of objections they might raise and have an answer for, that, for those things. How do I get that? That is a research question of a sort. It's more of an advocacy question in some ways. Um, but a lot of the time when you ask people what should we be doing research on, they just kind of tell you what's in their mind or you know something they want rather than frame it as a research question, which is what we were kind of hoping for. Any more on this? Any questions or comments? Or should I go on? Uh, so there was quite a lot of interest in um, ways in, in which people who want to promote OER can collaborate with each other. Also collaboration within institutions as well as uh, between institutions. But also how can we cooperate, um, communicate and cooperate with people living in another country who might be interested in this stuff? How do we form those kind of open networks that let us uh, do that? Um, so you could put this in, some, in you know, a connectivist framework or something and say, well, actually, people want to be closer and more intimately connected um, with each other. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the OER World Map project today, but um, that's one that could be seen to fit with this. Uh, a lot of interest in the technology and infrastructure around OER, and a lot of a desire for a more joined up ecosystem where it's easier to know kind of what's happening in the world of OER. Um, so it could be some sort of shared database, it could be some sort of shared repository or something like that. Um, it's also about the protocols that are used to describe OER and sort of catalogue them and share them. Um, and how do you keep track of revisions, for instance? Do you have some sort of GitHub-style system so that you can track back and say, right, well, you've got Biology 101, this variant, some sort of family tree for a particular OER. Again, is it a research question? Kind of. But we sort of know what that would look like. It's just someone actually building it and doing it. Um, ethical issues came up quite a lot. Um, some of these were to do with um, digitization rather than openness specifically. Um, and some of the things that we had coming up earlier this morning, uh, worries about privacy, security, trust in a kind of transparent environment. Uh, it being sort of unclear who owns student data and uh, how does social networking fit into that? Where does, where's the distinction between public and private? 
And but a lot of this stuff is coming from people who are experts, right? They're experts in OER, and they're not sure about this stuff um, because it provokes complicated um, questions, especially at the institutional level. Anyone put anyone on that? Nope. Okay. So um, this has come up uh, a bit earlier today already. This idea of tensions between different interpretations of openness. Are there social and political dimensions to openness that you can't really ignore? Or do you take the view that this is just something pragmatic, we can just have free resources and nothing else has to change? I think that's an interesting question myself. Um, so the second part of this was just to say, what are the most pressing questions that you think need to be answered? And we got a lot of just kind of stuff. I'm not, not going to go into it. Um, you can go see on our blog, you can read some of those um, if you want. Um, but it's it's kind of a big mess. This is a word cloud made from um, answers to that question. So it's a mess, and some of the um, some of the ways that we were hoping to approach that data set in terms of <coughs> dividing up by role and country and so on, that wasn't really going to work. Um, so the way uh, I'm sort of looking at this bit of work at the moment is as a piece of action research. So it's a way of collecting opinions and information from a group of people and then sharing it back amongst that group with the idea of ending up at some sort of purposive reflection or some way of changing practice. If you look at traditional action research, this is not a community, right, by the normal definition. Um, because it's sort of self-selecting, you know, who's, who decides who's part of the open community or not. This doesn't work like that. Um, so there's some liberties taken methodologically with this sort of thing. But the idea is, to engage people to think more about what they're doing and uh, how other stakeholders might be able to advise them and sort of use openness as a way of connecting people together um, and sort of approaching problems in a shared way. So that's a bit of work that's getting written up at the moment. Um, in terms of what's come out of that, um, in terms of the uh, what kind of research could you do in the future, there's a list here of suggestions, um, holistic case studies, detailed case studies of open pedagogies, which include a theoretical framework rather than just tell us what you did with these OER. Um, I've mentioned this sort of idea of narrative or discourse analysis or openness, the holistic OER ecosystem and so on. There's increasingly an interest in kind of conversion. Um, I'm not sure how else to describe it. How do you turn people into advocates or how do you kind of convert them from what they were doing before into what you want them to do? Um, so these are my sort of perceptions of where are the tensions within this stuff. On the one hand, you, with the OER stuff, you have people whose intention is essentially to keep the system exactly as it is, but to replace commercial resources with free and open alternatives. Um, I tend to think of them as colonizers following um, sort of Habermas and the colonization of the life world sort of stuff. Um, it's not bad to be a colonizer, right? They, they, they're just working within existing frameworks. But that downplays the extent to which openness <coughs> is about freedom and uh, encouraging a certain sense of freedom. Uh, so at the other end of the scale, you've got the more sort of edgy punk kind of uh, end of things where actually OER is not about um, changing, uh, substituting one part of the system for another. It's about having a new system. Um, so it's about exploring and innovating and doing kind of just unforeseen things. It's also a tension between advocacy and people saying, I need this kind of evidence so I can take it to a policymaker. 
um, and the idea of sort of pure detached objective research um, and so on. So um, this is my last slide and I was trying to kind of pull this into some sort of um, digestible chunk um, and I would say the evidence base around this stuff is growing and um, it's come on quite a lot really in the last sort of five years or so. Um, and going back to this idea of openness and can you define it and um, do you need to, I would say because, because openness has this kind of um, contextual nature, um, it's very hard to universalize around it. Uh, plus there's this mutability of resources and practices themselves related to this idea of freedom. Um, there are challenges along sort of several vectors. Um, it's hard to be clear about what openness is doing. Especially if you think, as I do, that openness is essentially a sort of lack of something rather than a presence. Um, normal standards for validity of, of uh, research maybe have to be relaxed sometimes because it's kind of very exploratory and very kind of um, uh, sort of primordial almost, this stuff. Um, so I think. The thing that I keep coming back to um, around this stuff is that there's a very sort of intimate connection between the idea of openness as a lack of restriction and the idea of freedom and what freedom kind of entails. Um, and there's different ways that you can package that up. Um, if you use the idea of um, positive and negative freedom, which comes from uh, Isaiah Berlin amongst others, um, then Openness as a kind of absence just tells us, well, you're not impeded anymore from doing X, Y, Z. You're, you're free to use this alternative to a textbook and you're free to remix it and so on. But what we don't have a strong enough sense of yet is what are those positive freedoms? So if you give someone the freedom to in interact with resources in this way, what do you actually do with it? Do you need some sort of ideological framework, some sort of mission, or is it just something to explore and kind of, that's it, there's nothing else to say about it. So anyway, um, that's me, and if you've got time, I'll take any questions you might have. Thanks. <coughs>